Well, hey, cousins, you are listening to Revolutionary Hood Rat with Kim Young of Dope Black Social Worker, and welcome back. We have us another episode, and I'm really excited to be able to bring this conversation to you and introduce y'all to the guest that we have for today. However, before we get to that, y'all know we got to do some revolutionary news. So this week's revolutionary news goes out to the UK social work cousins who are going on strike. So if y'all have not heard about this, there's a collective of social workers in the UK that are going on strike. So Unison members of the Barnett Council, excuse me, so Unison is spelled U-N-I-S-O-N, all capital letters. So members of the Barnett Council, they're actually walking out and going on a six-day strike over the next month. And the dispute has a lot to do with chronic staffing issues within their teams. But yo, the way this strike has been organized is very social work very on brand because although it is a strike and it's for six days y'all they have picked the exact days they are going on strike and i love this shit so (laughs) the homies will be on strike september 26th october 3rd 4th 10th 12th yeah and 12th and so shout out to the homies in the uk that um are going on strike to demand better pay better working conditions to improve the retention rates of staff that are working with children and families in their programs and departments and agencies i stand in full solidarity and i love the way y'all have organized this movement organized this work and i really hope that more folks pay attention to what y'all are doing over there in the uk so shout out to the uk homies so next We ain't got no Earth is Ghetto because we have us another guest. So let me go ahead and introduce y'all to our guest for the week. So today's guest is Kristen Lennox, who is the Director of Engagement at Voices for Virginia Children, where she is responsible for identifying advocacy opportunities, developing traditional digital and grassroots engagement and advocacy strategies, and mobilizing advocates to support priority policies. Kristen is passionate about increasing parity in community resources and mental health access for youth and families in Virginia. She believes in a transformative, healing-centered approach to community engagement. Kristen is also a graduate of Virginia Commonwealth University's social work program. She's a licensed clinical social worker here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and she's also a revolutionary baddie. Now, let's go ahead and get into this conversation because, y'all, it is good. All right. Kristen, oh, I'm so excited um, for the conversation. I was already excited, but y'all know, like I'm already a little biased about Virgos. (laughs) I didn't know know you were a Virgo, but now it makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. I already know this is going to be a good, good, good time. Yes. What's your sign? I'm a Capricorn through and through. Oh, we're gelling. Yeah, it's we got it. <laughs> we go together real bad. Like we just can't get rid of each other. That's just how that go. Um, yes. So yeah, really grateful that you made some space for us to connect mm. in this way in a very candid conversation. Because right, like we know of each other and are learning more about each other because of some yes. things that we're working on. But I think we know about each other through the work. But I was yes. like, no, like I want to get to know no Kristen because like <laughs> she out here doing dope shit. Um, and, uh, the first place I would love to start in getting to know you, but then also you getting an opportunity to share with folks who just make some time to listen to our conversation. How'd you get into this work, right? Cause you're a social worker, you're a licensed clinical social worker. We'll get into all of that stuff. Like, how'd you find your way into this work? Oh man, I love that question. Cause it's so meandering for me. <laughs> <I feel laughs> like, 
Um, I, I actually feel like I, I found social work by chance. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was a bad kid. Um, I like did not go to school. I got terrible grades and I like graduated by the skin of my teeth. I was basically told don't bother applying anywhere. You're not going to get in anywhere. Um, so I went to community college and I got my associates and it was there that I really fell in love with psychology. Mm. Uh, and then when I got my associates, I was like, what's like psychology related that is not going to require me going to school to become a doctor. Um, I stumbled onto social work only to find out that I have had so many interactions with social workers growing up. I've had so many interfacing with social workers um, and, and um, you know, just admired a lot of the work that was done by social workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably at the time thought I had a lot of admiration for the profession of social work, only to realize it's, it's the people, <laughs> not the profession that I love. Um, <laughs> and I know we're going to get into that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, that's really what it was. It was like, I love the brain. I love people. And uh, how do I do work like this? Um, and then I, I fell into it and, uh, and then it, it was, that was all she wrote. So you fell into it as well. I really fell in or it, it took me, I don't know, either way. Um, cause yeah, the social work was social working and, um, but yeah, to only to realize that I had had, like I mentioned, a lot of interfacing with social workers that, that I hadn't really realized I had had. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've got some living expertise in in grief and traumatic grief, uh, losing my mom at a young age when I was an adolescent um, and having like hospice social workers mm. and not realizing that's what they were. Mm. And, what they um, and so as I got to learn the profession more and the field more, I realized like, wow, I want to be the social worker I wish I had. Mm. <laughs> um, because the ones that I got, uh, I think tried their best and just were not equipped to um, meet me where I was at and where my family was at from a cultural level too. So yeah. I realized that I wanted to, uh, I realized that that's where my real calling and ministry was for social work. So yeah, I definitely want to talk about that cultural piece, but I also <laughs> want to make comment because I, it's another, um, I think I have to explore this more with the lady, right? My own therapist. I think I got to figure out like, what is this pattern of me picking up people who don't want to be in places or like fall in to places where we feel like we don't belong. But like, I really find myself gelling and connecting with individuals who didn't realize what was possible for them. Mm-hmm. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I'm, I got to figure out what that what that shit is about. But I think I think it has something to do with always rooting for the underdog because no, for sure, I've been there. But like, I yeah. love connecting with people who also fall into the work because I think I'm annoyed, and maybe you share this too. I get annoyed with the people I always dreamed of being a social worker. I, I can't imagine want- that. I, don't, <laughs> I have no concept for dreaming to do this like be a social worker <laughs> I don't really understand it it was actually it was like the other episode like a trigger for me <laughs> yeah it was like the episode you all did um I forget when it was uh but someone was like I don't I don't I like don't want to hear I don't want to help all you people <laughs> I know, like I, come on now that's just being honest <laughs> um and and like I really I truly yeah I truly get that I um I shared with you and I know we'll talk about it more that I taught uh in a social work program briefly and you know we do the regular like who are you and what are your pronouns and why are you here um and I was always a little bit surprised I was like I've never I could never imagine dreaming social work I never never Um, I never, never dreamed and and it fa- it truly found me and it's it's clear like I'm where I'm 
where I am meant to be. And um, I never would have been like, even today, I'm like, I don't want to grow up to be a social worker. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I'm trying to figure out how to get at this thing. (laughs) Um, Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So I know for me as a Black person showing up, practicing in this space, there's a small number of folks who look like me. But honey, for you, it is even smaller. It is. Let's Um, spend some time right there. Yeah, no, I'm, I love that you're, we're talking about this. Um, I I remember being the only Asian American and the only Filipino American in any of my classes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so funny now because I actually meet more now. And I met some students when I was teaching even. And mm-hmm. that was so surprising and like delightful. Um, but I never, I never had um, any like comrades like that or peers through the course. Um and that was interesting. I remember being in an, uh, in that oppressed groups class. Mm, was that like uh, three six oh three? That social justice class. It was. It was the BSW version of that, and so yeah. it was like intro to oppressed groups, which feels like what was the a, name of the class? Something oh, like that. Um, the course was taught by a white man. Um, it's like a whole other thing. A white man taught that class. I remember we watched a lot of clips of like The Office or Family Guy. It was very, wow. you you already know. Wow. Um, and I remember we were doing presentations about press, oppressed groups and somebody did a presentation about um, monoliths and they kept um, saying the chut word. Like they just kept saying, mm. kept saying chinky eyes and they kept saying mm. it throughout the presentation. And I remember being like, oh, this is, weird like there's other ways to talk about this without saying yeah 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 yeah. um and I remember after class somebody several people coming up to me being like was that okay for you and I was like no (laughs) I didn't realize I was representing like all of Asia um and like what's interesting too is like as a Filipino American I actually don't feel a lot of acceptance into like East Asian spaces like Mm. that's a other like interesting nuance mm-hmm. um, Filipino Americans have like bring a lot of like indigenous and like mm-hmm. ancestral stuff that is very different than a lot of East Asians that we get g- grouped with so it was just it was just it's just interesting um so, but yeah there there was not a lot of comrades in that space um and still whenever I find one like we are kindred like excited that we're both yeah. in because you're right uh it's pretty it's a pretty small portion of us um most of our parents want us to be doctors and nurses <laughs> um and so they imagine a different kind of healing in our uh in in our work <laughs> yeah are you first generation just by uh yeah I, I, yeah and so some people use first gen differently the okay. way I I'm first generation, like American born. Gotcha. Um, and so, yeah, daughter to immigrant parents uh, and a super blended family. Uh, so, yeah, the pressures there of really social work, really? Like, like, what is that? I heard you don't to be, I heard you don't make a lot. And so, yes, I definitely uh, met some of that pushback. <laughs> so, then, like, for us, and we're not, I'm not representing nobody but myself. And I can hear from you, like, you're not representing nobody but yourself. Right. But it's kind of thinking for us in this work and where there's opportunities where, like, paths have aligned or crossed, I know that it is critical for me to be able to find comrades like you 
right? To be able to, number one, have representation and exist not in solitude or alone, right? Like that yeah. part is critical for me. And okay. even just as a black person, strip away any titles or any license, like I come, I grew up in a place that was incredibly diverse. I'm not like it won't shit won't pretty and beautiful because, you know, the way that folks joke about the different coasts, like me being from the West Coast, people on the West Coast are considered to be nice, not kind people, but nice. <laughs> And people yeah. out on the East Coast or down in the South are kind people, right? So yeah. like, that's the way. So like things can either show up overtly or covertly. But I will say like growing up in San Diego, I grew up a around everybody but me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> everybody but me. So yeah. when I moved out here to um, Virginia to begin my program in Richmond, I remember being so shocked by everything being black or white. And like, there was nothing in between that was represented. Yes, very that. Um, I have found myself in a in community a lot more with just Asian Americans and a lot of Filipino Americans mm -hmm. um, taught and, and recognizing how uniquely different it is to be in the in the in the south right like yeah um and how unique that is versus being asian american in the north or on the west coast like i mentioned i just got back from a week and a half in california and i had never felt i mean i don't <laughs> often feel like oh wow i like blend in with Baby. everyone like, i grew up with so many filipino americans i had a jolly bee oh. i grew up with a jolly bee <laughs> Gosh, you're so blessed. I grew up eating sweet spaghetti. I grew up eating lumpia and ponce, like the oh, sweet bread. Baby, so like blessed. that. <laughs> so blessed. Uh, I, I love that like, for that you. That was my life. <laughs> I love that for you. Um, I love that for you so much. And I'm so glad you're speaking my language right now. Uh, yeah, it, it, it was that. It was being able to like go to the, to go yeah. to Gold and to go to those bakeries and to, uh, and that for me was, so heartwarming and illuminating and it was like wow this is what it feels like to feel mm, belonging. um I was reflecting with a client I get I I really love that a lot of the clients I still practice uh so some clinical social work on the side um and I have some Asian American clients mm. and I'm being with them um and it came up like the, just the concept of traveling and all of that. And it made me realize I love traveling so much because if I'm already going to feel othered where I am, I may as well be the other when I go. So it's like, I may as well experience the world as if I'm not from there. Cause I already get treated as if I'm not from here every day, every moment. Yeah. So um, it's nice. It's so like, why not? So lovely. I want to lean into that. And that's, I think that's why I love traveling so much, which, uh, was an enlightening thing to realize. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm even like, even as you're talking, I'm getting increasingly curious because I know I carry this level of rage and frustration just from some of the, the issues that I see and deal with as a black person, like my feeling, like feeling invisible, feeling like your pain is ignored, that you, um, that you're not worthy of insert whatever the thing is. And if I'm being transparent and honest, the problems and issues of folks that look like me are way more visible mm. than the problems and issues of folks who look like you. So yeah. I can't even imagine yeah. what that like layer of frustration and rage is on top of like all the other shit that you're dealing with showing up in this work as your authentic self. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I could talk about that a lot. Um, 
and Asian rage specifically is is so interesting to explore because it does not feel I mean I'm I'm socialized to be like demure and obedient mm. and uh the model minority right which is which is honestly bullshit. yeah it's, it's bullshit <laughs> but it's this double-edged sword of like yeah. a thing that granted me proximity to whiteness that has helped me advance and experience privilege in ways that black folks and and other melanated folks and bodies of culture have not right and mm. so recognizing this interesting sort of line line that I chose and this tension that I experienced um I read a really great book recently and I'll I'll look up the author in a moment called uh, Biting the Hand Growing Up Asian in Black mm. and White America and it starts off talking really deeply about Asian rage um and how to come to terms with it and the journey through that um which resonates really deeply with me I feel like becoming comfortable with my rage recently it has been such an important part of my journey because otherwise it was me trying to outrun my rage and yeah. therefore it like consuming me more because it's I'm not I'm not naming it I'm not accepting it um, and so it's been a, a journey of really accepting my rage and listening to it and listening to what my rage is telling me and what it's really telling me is that something is not right and that something is not just and it's okay mm. that I'm mad about that mm-hmm. mm. I love that I love mm-hmm. that. And I see how you ended up in front of somebody's classroom teaching the thing to the future generation of social workers. And so I want to get us there. For, <laughs> I know, right? That's why I'm saying I want to get us there in a moment because we all have a journey and path when we go through our graduate programs and then we yeah. leave in several jobs until we figure shit out. Yeah. yeah. And how many jobs have you gone through? Wow. Okay. Well, the thing <laughs> is, too, is that um, I had really only had one job for almost seven years. uh, And that was through clinical social work. I worked Mm -hmm. with young folks between and their families. uh, So the young folks were either two to 17. uh, And I worked predominantly in crisis intervention, mental health with those folks in an office out of the East End. uh, But we served a lot of all of Metro Richmond and the surrounding counties. And uh, so I was there for a really long time. Um, I started there in my field placement and then I was there and then I like kind of progressed up into leadership there. Okay. And so um, how many positions inside of the organization? Did in you that organization in? itself, I had, I had interned and then I was uh, a, a member of a team and then I supervised that team. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was in my work as a supervisor, truly seeing how the sausage is being made in clinical services and care work and the medical model of how we treat trauma treat um and I I started to realize like there's there's got to be something bigger than this uh and then I made the wonderful mistake of attending Kim Young's workshop on moral injury (laughs) and then I was like oh shit what I have um it was being, it was like being in these hour-long negotiations with insurance companies talking about mm. why somebody deserves a service. It was it was watching people get denial after denial from insurance and whatever means saying that your mental health is not bad enough, your mm. mental health is not mm-hmm. poor enough, you are you are not poor enough, or or you're too poor, like you're either underinsured or overinsured, mm-hmm. but you're not insured enough. Um and it was honestly seeing that, that I was like, this is not it. Like, there's got to be something bigger than this. Um, I fell into healing-centered engagement. I started learning from, that's from Dr. Sean Jenright. I started learning a lot more about different models of how we approach trauma. 
Um, I stumbled onto a job posting for where I'm at now at Voices for Virginia's Children um, and have really fallen in love with how we approach healing mm. and youth advocacy and youth agency. Um, but before I, I, I fully joined Voices, I also did a stint uh, teaching <laughs> at VC. stint. Yeah, just a stint. <laughs> like I did two semesters. Um, what, ha- what had happened was I quit <laughs> my job without any backup. Haven't uh, we? We've all done that. I quit. I've I done was, that. I was like, I know I need to be out. Uh, and I think maybe VCU might have a place for me. Um, so I started there for a little bit. I realized that being an adjunct just is not it. Um, it is like basically volunteer work. You don't get paid very much to That's do a lot. Um, and, and that was really hard. So, um, but, but while I was there, while I thought I was going to be there, uh, voices really worked out and I'm really pleased with the work that I get to do now. So you uh, so- in like counting and then and then I think I mentioned I'm still seeing some clients on yeah. the sides. I still maintain my license. So that is like one, two, three, four, five jobs, two of which I'm still working. You're on track. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of people's story. We're still on track, right? We're um on track. and at one point I was teaching, seeing clients and working in voices. And the the social work standard of three jobs at once is just like that's how we do. I don't know why we. I've do been it. there. I have yet to come across somebody who honestly just has one. Yeah, just one one full time job. Yeah, I'm still yep. waiting. I'm still waiting to find somebody. Yep. So you I was shared just talking to a social worker yesterday who was like, "I still actually just do that on the side." I was like, "What? What side? There's what, no there's, there's no side. You got to do it. Hell, um, you shared a lot." in that story of how you transitioned through all those different positions. And what I really want to pull out and even, I think we share some rage around this, is like this separating of macro and micro. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I get really upset about it because I feel like to separate them makes either group ill-equipped for the work fully right? It does not make any sense to not understand the system. And like, yeah, we had policy classes, but they were from a clinical lens. Yeah. Um, and they barely scratched the surface and they did not press the urgency of understanding those systems no. before you capture them. Um, it was very sort of like glacial, like very like just the tip of the iceberg um, and, and was not going into the deep nuanced understandings of how policy affects us mm-hmm. in a clinical setting, right? Like mm-hmm. I had to learn it as a supervisor trial by fire and that was really hard. And it, and it, it became, it, it became a thing that just made me feel really hopeless because I, yeah. I realized that there are these systems that I was a part of that I could not influence from my position as a practitioner, Right. Um, and so, and then I think it's the same the other way to keep macro folks away from the clinical work. A, unfortunately, um, and I, I mean, I, I always hate to say it, but it makes it very hard to be marketable when you only have when you don't have like all of the and I know so many graduates and students uh, and 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 colleagues who still experience that. And that sucks. It shouldn't have to be that separation. Um and and I feel like it's it's also just, it, it starts to feel like a tool to keep us in the trenches without seeing clearly the kind of work that we're doing, the kind of systems that we're in. It it's and it keeps us separate. Mm-hmm. 
it definitely keeps us separate from each other because throughout the, you know, grad school, they make you choose. Yep. Like your first year, you get to spend some time together with your cohort, but then you have to de- decide if you're going to go clinical or if you're going to go macro. And then once you do that, you don't see those people again until like graduation. Yeah. Um, and then it even makes your network smaller yep. when you start getting, you know, when you get out there and you start doing the work. And I had a similar experience. I really didn't understand the impacts of like systems and policies and the need to understand those things and operate at that level until I started to supervise. Yep. Um, until I started to see like, oh shit, like this mm-hmm. is this particular policy is making this incredibly difficult and that's making it difficult for my exactly. staff to yeah. be able to show up as their whole self to be able to serve these people. And yeah. I was like, oh no, I got to figure out how I get there, yep. right? Like I, gotta, I have to understand that world a bit better, but grad school did not equip me for that. It didn't no. equip me for a lot of shit, if we're being honest. And right. I want to talk a little bit about something you said we were, I think we were at happy hour or something, child. Something you said, and I have yet to be able to forget about glorified case manager school. Yeah. And how uh, that's really what it feels like these social work programs are becoming. Yeah, especially like BSW programs uh, or undergraduate programs. Uh, it feels like there is sort of like this coded or hidden way that systems are not completely revealed to almost to keep people in that hard work that like very administrative um like hand holding people through things work thinking that you know here I am thinking oh I'm like saving this person right like I'm I'm saving this person I'm helping this person yeah. I'm empowering them um only to be like butting up against a system that is just not shifting from your this micro level of work that you're doing and then, and the other thing too that it, it does is, is when we're separating micro and macro level workers, uh, we are reducing the kinds of minds that they that we all get to interact with, mm. right? So, like big picture and small picture people shouldn't just be talking to other big picture or other mm. small people. They should be talking to one to another. Each other. Yeah, yeah. Because they have a lot to learn from one another, and it's actually both of those minds together that can shift and change things. It's not going to take either just one of those minds or groups. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, glorified case manager school. I feel like the way that they keep us separated um, and keep us on track. Uh, and also I feel like the, the kind of coding and encouragement of if you want to work with people, you have to go clinical. Yeah. That's not true. That's you're not true still at all. working with people when you're macro. Like mm-hmm. and you're definitely working with people when you're mezzo level, which only mm-hmm. a very rare few amount of schools actually have mezzo level programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you're still working with people. So to disillusion people and thinking, oh, if you if you're good with people, you have to go clinical. Mm-hmm. Like it feels like we're all just like suckling at the teat of this like fucked up healthcare system and, and the insurance system. Um, and we're we're funneling more people into it. Um, into the medical model of healing that just does not work for everybody. And um, people bottom out in that system. We're already in the workforce crisis. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And um, so even thinking about like, if, if I'm being honest, case management is a technical trade. Yeah. It is. It does not require a degree. It does not require that somebody go to an advanced program to learn the skills to be able to do case management. I'm not reducing the importance of that work. It is incredibly important work, but it is still for work that honestly somebody could learn through a technical trade program. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and even you shouldn't have to go into debt to do not that. have to go into debt. I feel to like do that. I know plenty of people who have. Dang. 
um, the empathetic and 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 amazing approaches to how they interact with other people who could do that work mm-hmm. and try to do not need to go into debt Mm-mm. um into at at a at a higher level of education to do that. Case management is a, I think it is a highly skilled um, industry, but it is yeah. not social work. Like it's there, it's a difference between like, I think, well, the way we're doing case management these days, I don't know, yeah. to your point, like everything is in in support of upholding this medical model of just right. helping people. And right. so it's like pumping out case managers, <laughs> pumping out case managers to be able to yeah. do that. But oftentimes when you see these case management job postings, they want somebody with an MSW. Uh, yes. And the, that, is that, that is a clinical person who has maybe <laughs> not had a lot of interactions with macro level or system yeah. work. Um, and now they get to be stuck in a system that maybe they don't feel a lot of agency in. I know that oh. when I was a clinical uh, when I was a, a clinician full time, I don't think I felt agency in my work or my ability to change yeah. or influence systems. And that is a breeding ground for compassion fatigue. Absolutely. For burnout, for moral injury, for just these jobs. And like, and that's why people leave, right? Like, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> we never leave because of the people we leave because we of the leave. culture of an agency organization, or yeah. just feeling like you don't have um, power within exactly. your own role yeah. to make change. That's why folks leave jobs. It's yeah. never because of those they're in service to. Yeah. And we actually, yeah. we really need to feel like we have agency in what we have do. To. Because if you, if you don't, it, yeah, it's just a breeding ground for helplessness and hopelessness. And um and 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 the only way to move around that truly is for people to feel like they have some sort of say, some sort of stakehold in in that work, in that world. Yeah. So you've been able to make the transition, even though you say you still do clinical work part time on the side. I get yeah. it. Uh, but you've been able to make that transition from full time clinical work into the more the policy uh, space. Yeah. I get asked a lot, like, how, how do you make the transition? I want to figure out how I can also get out of clinical work and do more macro policy stuff. Right. What was, how would you go about doing it? Or what will you share with people as some insight on what they can do? Right. Um, well, I think the hardest thing for me, and I don't know, I hope it wasn't your experience. For me, it was really taking a big leap of faith. Yeah. Trusting that the universe and God got me, that I am going where I need to be going, uh, because where I was wasn't going to be able to go where I wanted to go. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, because again, I was not well versed, trained, or educated in macro level things, I was entering into this field uh, of advocacy and policy advocacy as 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 an entry level worker. So I got license and everything, right? License and everything. Yeah, exactly. Everything (laughs) I got paid. And I got paid as an entry level worker. Mm -hmm. I took a substantial, um, a substantial salary cut making that transition. I had to change how I lived, where I lived, um, and, and all of those things. I made it work. Um, and now I've I've been there enough and have obviously uh been able to demonstrate my value. And, and how much value a licensed person brings into a clinical yeah. space that I am getting compensated back to a space that is a lot more comfortable for me and, and back to where I was in my previous position. But it was a lot of self-negotiation of like, mm-hmm. how important is quality of life for me? Is it is it important enough to, to give this up or to give that up so that I can make ends meet? Is it important enough to work three jobs at once so that I can make <laughs> ends meet? And I, told, and I had to say, yeah, it really mm-hmm. is. It really is that important. 
um, because I wasn't, um, I didn't have enough space to care for myself. Mm -hmm. I did not have enough space to do the aftercare, the tremendous amount of aftercare that's required when you're in the field like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had so much more personal healing to do. Uh, and, you know, we can't expect young people to be well when the adults are wounded. And uh, that is a quote from Dr. Jen Wright that I hold really closely because I I, re I didn't realize that. I didn't realize yeah. how how unwell I was and how much better I needed to be. Yeah, a lot of people in the, thank you. Thank you for your honesty and sharing that. A lot of people in this work, they're unwell. Yeah. A lot of people, here, yeah. yeah, like, and a lot of people who are doing direct service level work are incredibly unwell, right. but yet continue to show up. And I get it at a certain level. I understand it. I get it. And I also recognize that they're showing up and they're actually making things worse, but don't recognize that. Yeah. And so I know it was time for me to leave direct service. It, I cared deeply about, and I still do, about the young people that I'm in this work for, but I was yeah. no good to them. Mm -hmm. I was no good to them. I couldn't show up kind of to your example. I couldn't show up bringing my best self. I wasn't doing well in the aftercare components of after sitting with them through all of their trauma, their pain, their grief, all the evil things happening to them in their mm -hmm. world and being able to take care of me. I said, I, I've got to leave this alone. Right. I got to leave this alone and figure out how I go upstream. And I just got exhausted. And I yeah. think folks who are doing direct service work are not honest enough about being exhausted. Direct service yeah. work is yeah. exhausting. And I I still, I mean, I still look with such admiration to folks that are, that continue oh to do that. Oh my goodness, it, me and too. People, and it continues to be their ministry because it is yes. incredibly important. There are so many families that rely on that kind of coaching and, and yes. constant support from a, a, from a clinician. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I also, there was something that was not as, as a collect, as a person from a collective culture, there, the individual nature mm. of feeling was not like, it was not jiving with me. It never I, made sense. Here I was hanging out with young people and I was like, I just, I'm their friend. They think of me <laughs> as their friend. I want to be their friend. Why can't I be their friend? And, <laughs> um, and I had been so trained to put my story yeah. on and and to not show any parts of myself um, as as so I could be like a blank slate, right? For for my clients, uh, but my clients didn't perceive me as a blank slate. They perceived me as their friend. And so as soon as and then what actually happened often is that when I would try to discharge a client, they would regress because mm. I was friend I was not their clinician yeah um, and so it was breaking my heart to be like I'm I am in community with these folks and then you're just telling me to end community I because can't. they don't they don't clinically fit the bill anymore and I was and it just didn't make sense to me and now I love to be yeah. in a place where young folks are my friends <laughs> or, <laughs> or, or they're my friend I don't know if they're if I'm theirs but <laughs> they, I'm blaming right them though they will be up in my phone at night talking about some policy that they want to change. And I love, I love that. It. I love that I love we're friends. And I love that we're human. And there's like, there's a the way that they, that I remember feeling trained in social work was being like this person that lacked common humanity. And that was just mm -hmm. not important to me. And, um, and you're right. Like, like you said, it was not make, it was not helping me show up to mm -hmm. do that was that 
I didn't want to harm other people. By, yeah, by- that, that shit never made sense to me. The moment that people said, oh, yeah, if you see a client in public, you're supposed to act like you don't know them. I said, but I live in the neighborhood. But what are exactly. you talking about? Like, like- <laughs> I'm, I'm here. I remember running into talking family. About? I remember running into families at the Second Street Festival, and we loved running into each other. Yeah, like. like- it was like, oh, hey, you're here. Hey. Yeah. Like. And I love, I loved that. Um, and to pretend that I didn't felt so wash out minds. Because if someone I knew didn't say hi to me, I'd be like, I'm hurt. I'm hurt. I'm making up stories. <laughs> I'm cussing you out on Facebook Live. I'm hurt. I'm hurt. Um, <laughs> and so it was just like I don't. And and like, well, I get it. I get it from some sort of like you know theory. For me, it is not right. For me, it does not feel like what works for me because again I'm I'm just I'm from a you know collective cultures I know you get that like yeah. I'm, I'm much more collective in how I approach things um and 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 now that I have some clients that I see on the side um through a through a private practice uh in partnership with somebody else I I get to do do care work that is more quality than quantity mm. I get to do care work where I get to set the standards and let them know what I feel about certain crisis sources and which ones I would call and and what may happen if you call or text this crisis resource and what may happen. Like I get to um, approach it differently in a way that just sits with my spirit a lot differently and a lot more naturally. Yeah. So you do and are a lot of cool things. (laughs) <laughs> like <laughs> not just so much coming from you <laughs> and you know as a Capricorn I wouldn't have said that shit if I didn't mean it um but like <laughs> um but not just how you show up in the professional space for whatever that word really means um but how you show up just in the world I want to spend some time talking about the hood red shit that you do oh, oh my gosh that you do you do so many cool things so like what does hood red shit look like for you Oh my gosh, hood rat shit for me looks like joy. It looks like playing. I love to play and be playful. Um, whether that means like literally playing or just being joyful and goofy with people. Um, it means adventuring and trying new things. It means doing those things that people say, um, that seems like white people shit. No, no, <laughs> no. I'm sorry someone made you think that. It shouldn't be. It should it not be. be. Uh, there shouldn't be such a thing. Uh, and the reason, and and like, it's such a shame that we scare ourselves. Are they talking of, about improv? I'm talking. I'm talking about improv. I'm I love that you do improv. Like, <laughs> I'm talking about like escape rooms. I'm talking about like mindfulness. Like I'm talking about like all the things that people say are like too woo woo or yeah. too you know. And I'm like, that's not fair. I am sorry that you thought play wasn't permitted for us. Um, it kind of reminds me about like, this is a complete like different path I'm going down now, but um, it reminds me a little bit about Disney princesses and how like every white Disney princess is like asleep in a castle, but every brown or black Disney princess is like, has a story that is tough and difficult. Yeah, and, working and, and shit, heartbroken. And they, yeah. They don't get softness. And I want a world where black and brown people are permitted oh, softness. And play. And, and play and and creativity and it and it that to me shouldn't be a white coated thing that should nah. be for everybody and I'm sorry to anyone who thinks that they weren't allowed in those spaces like because escape rooms are dope the rage awesome. like have you been to the rage room or like you could the rage room is amazing amazing 
I I love the place where you get to throw the axes and shit. Amazing. The axes is amazing. Yes. And I'm sorry (laughs) that people think that 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 is not somewhere where bodies of culture should be. But um, I I I rebuke that. I reject that. (laughs) Um, But but improv. Yes, I've loved falling in love with that. Um, I've only done two sessions, so it's that hobby is still young for me. Uh, but it's really helped me expand my thinking from a space of scarcity to one of abundance. Mm. And that's been very therapeutic for me. Mm. Uh, Being able to recognize that so many realities exist within one moment and so many multitudes exist has been very helpful for me. Um, It was a hobby that I started more so out of my social anxiety that came from lockdown and and then I was like wow every week I get to play with my friends be goofy as shit and and (laughs) and do dumb accents and be really silly um and I get to play and and there's a reason why play therapy works Mm -hmm. to work out stress for young people and it's the same for grown people Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we need to play more we need to create more um Something else I love to do is something called soul collage. Um, It is like an intuitive collaging process where you make little cards and eventually you might have a card big enough that you can consult with a Mm. little bit like a tarot deck. But um, I I love doing that. I love like crafting and uh, and being radically imaginative. Yeah. Um, and I think that's all it is for me. Just uh, a hood rat shit is being super imaginative to the point that it's like radical and unbelievable. I love that. I love that. Um, so I imagine, and you let me know if I got this wrong, but I imagine you're not trying to do the social work shit forever the way you've been doing it. Oh, no, no. And, um, Unlike you, I don't have my five-year, ten-year. I don't have no plan. I just know I'm out this bitch. I don't know what I'm gonna do. Um. Well, I've heard like <laughs> great aspirations for uh the the Kim Young School of like dancers and exotic yeah. dancers and strippers. I like I want to strip there. Um. But no, I I know for a fact that this is not forever for me. I also know for a fact that nonprofit work is not forever Same. for me. It's. Uh, it's it's you know it's it's unfair I'll say that's the word it's unfair that I that I feel like that's the only place I can work in because of my education Mm -hmm. and my experience my background that's unfair to me um Mm -hmm. because the nonprofit industrial complex is a really sticky one Mm -hmm. um and you know if you if you're really really lucky and you can find an org that matches you in value and matches you in humanity you can tolerate yeah you can be it's very bearable, yeah. um, but then there's still all those other systems that you have to be stuck in that are really hard, right? Yeah, yeah I want my racism yeah. up front. Like people think I'm joking. Like yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to go to corporate. Yeah. I want my shit up front and I want the check that comes with the shit up front. And I also right. want to be able right. to get like right. my, the stocks and shit that come with, like I want my shit up front. <laughs> like, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm so, not going to feel bad about it when the moment. Exactly. Um, so like, I don't know that like going corporate is fully in <laughs> there for me. Um, I think a lot of what I'm most interested in is exploring the future of psychedelic medicine and plant-based Ooh, medicine. That's dope. 
I think that's a really huge deal. Um, I've definitely experienced a lot of ways that it's been healing and uh, brought a lot of enlightenment to a lot of folks. Um, and I think it's going to be a booming and blossoming space. And I already really, I really want to get up in there. Um, Virginia is doing okay. I mean, surprisingly okay. You know, we presented some bills. Um, I think last session, mm -hmm. the first time we got a plant-based psychedelic mm -hmm. bill by um, Senator Hashmi, and that was super exciting. Um, I think California just passed one um, or okay. similar. Um, and I think that there's a lot of potential there, and I, I really want to be part of that. Yeah, that'd be dope. So when that moment comes, right, when you're transitioning away from the field, the way you have known it, the way you have practiced in it, what are you hoping? I don't really like the word legacy, but it's the one that comes to mind in this moment. What are you hoping you leave behind? Oh, like the type of impact? Yeah. I love this question. I'm a really, <laughs> I'm a really dark and morbid person. Um, and that's the I, Virgo in you. That's very earthy. <laughs> I recently asked my partner, <laughs> I recently asked my partner out of the blue, hey, if you died tomorrow, like, would you be proud of? That's a legit like, question. Would you feel like you had a great legacy? Um, and I felt really proud to say that if something did happen to me tomorrow, I would be proud of the legacy I left, I'm leaving behind like today mm -hmm. in this moment. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, it's a legacy of healing. It's a legacy of vulnerable, like radical vulnerability. Uh, it's a legacy of love and care, familial bonds, friendly bonds that feel familial. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a legacy of play and challenging and being the person that talks too much, too loud, that laughs too loud, too hard. Um, <laughs> like that is, that to me is all I want to leave behind. And I think I'm, I'm on track for that. So I feel good mm, about that. That is beautiful. Kristen, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Tell the people how to find you. Oh, how to find me. Um, I am on Instagram. I think it's Kristen underscore LCSW. Um, and I work at Voice for Virginia's Children. We are a nonprofit that does state level advocacy across Virginia. Uh, one of my favorite things that we do is uh, work with Virginia's Youth in Action, which is a youth advocacy cohort of amazing, awesome young people who are going to change the world that are going to be my mm -hmm. bosses and the people that I vote for someday. And I <laughs> can't wait. Um, especially if it means I'm in early retirement. <laughs> um, and you can find me out in the world playing, being silly, doing improv, uh, going on long, luxurious walks, listening yes. to my podcasts, making my little collages, yes. being as mindful <laughs> as possible. Uh, you can find me staring off into the distance, dreaming of a future where I don't have a job like this. <laughs> <laughs> um, those are just a few places where you can find me or hopefully like strapped into an airplane seat going somewhere. Gone. <laughs> Gone. Well, I am grateful to know you. I'm grateful to be in this work with you. And I cannot wait to see what our lives look like collectively on the other side. Right. Totally. Not like death or nothing. I ain't getting more of it, but like the other side. No, no, no. This. Th this. Yeah. This, this. side. Like, I can't wait this. to see you on the other side. <laughs> um, and I also this. like, thank you. Like, thank you for honestly, I don't think you reckon. I, I know we jest, but like you helped pull me towards the other side. I feel <laughs> really, really grateful for that. I love how authentically you show up um, and how real you are. And I know that it's 
it's got such an impact on so many people and it's really important, Kim. So mm -hmm. I just feel, I feel incredibly blessed and grateful to be in community with you. I'm excited about getting into good trouble with you. I think, um, I think that uh, it's a testament to, to all of us, like, you know, the people that we all know, right. Yeah. And the people that you're in good company with. And, and that feels, it feels very good, warm and fuzzy. It does feel good. I only talk to people that I like. You one of the people that I like. And I thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you for uplifting all these stories and spotlighting all the different ways social workers be. It's really important <laughs> to do. <laughs> so all right. Thank you. Wow. So many moments, so many gems. I really hope that y'all enjoyed that conversation with Kristen. And I'm not even sure what is left to say in terms of a good black word for this week. If anything, I would hope that we have left you encouraged and motivated to simply play. Do some hood rat shit. Whatever that looks like for you, whatever feels good to your body, to your soul, to your heart, go do that shit. Play outside, touch some grass, do hood rat shit. Do hood rat shit. And y'all, as always, please remember to take care of your heart so that we can take care of each other because we are absolutely all that we got. Y'all, we will chat next time.